My name is Holly Lewis. I'm Lawson Keeney. And I am Jean Lewis. And welcome to The Long Watch, the internet's premier pro, the best pro John Let's Go podcast where we stick to the list for better or worse. This week we have a movie that one could describe as confused about what it wants to be, but that's not how I read it. It knows exactly what it wants to be. And what it wants to be is three different things. We have watched Neil Marshall's Doomsday. But before we get into that, we'll talk about what we've seen within the week. Lawson, why don't you start us off? So why don't we start off with something that we all saw together. We went to the cinemas and we saw the latest Marvel movie. We saw Thor Love and Thunder, which is a superhero movie directed by Taika Waititi. It's based on the character created by Stan Lee, Jack Kirby, Larry Lieber, and of course, the Ancient Pagans. And... It follows Thor, once again played by Chris Hemsworth, who's struggling to find purpose after the events of Avengers Endgame. And and he is uh, summoned to Asgard because the god butcher Gore, played by Christian Bale, is hunting down gods and killing them. And he is there to help protect Asgard. But while he's there, he sees his old girlfriend, Jane Foster, played by Natalie Portman. And she has become... A Thor in the interim. She has become worthy of holding the uh, hammer Mjolnir, which has reformed at her touch. And so he's not sure what to make of that, but together they've got to rescue children that Gore has captured and navigate their underlying feelings for each other. So uh, that's a bit plot heavy, as you can tell, but why don't you guys get us started here? Just tell us what you thought of it, and then I'll do my my usual shtick. Why don't you start us off, Sean? What did you think of it? I really enjoyed this. I thought the best parts of the movie were when it was taking itself seriously. Like, every scene with Gore was absolutely fantastic. Christian Bale knocked it out of the park with that performance. But when it was being funny, it was funny enough. I loved all of the parts with the goats. Hmm. Goats screaming is just something that gets me yes for the listeners thor is gifted a pair of goats at the beginning of the movie that are just sort of these these giant stupid looking creatures that kind of look like the goats from goat simulator with like the bug eyes and everything and every time they come on screen they shriek like people they just go and it never stops being funny it's gold we we walked out of the movie saying they need to be like a continuing feature they need to be in the next avengers movie they need their yeah. own character poster. Like I think they had their own character poster for this. You, you said, you said, John. I, I think it was you that for the next big crossover, like the whole big on your left moment, needs to be. Ah! Ah! Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, gold standard goats. Yeah. Oh, gold standard goats. They're weird, wobbly eyes. They're shrieking. They're kind of oafish temperament. They're great. I thought this movie did a pretty good job at bridging the tones between the comedy and the seriousness, because they let each scene be either. And even when they were saying jokes, they let the jokes be to do with the emotional throughline of the scene. And none of it really ruined the atmosphere, unlike some other jokes that have happened in the MCU previously. And I thought the score by Michael Giacchino was pretty good. I love the use of electric guitar and drum kits and synths here. It adds a really fun heavy metal vibe, and that works very well with the absolute metric shit ton of Guns N' Roses in this film. Mm. For me, I quite liked it. 
while I really did like it, it shows the wear and tear on the MCU at the moment. Because just look at the sheer amount of shit they're putting out. You know, they've got their series on Disney+. Plus. They're doing four movies a year. And that is starting to show. You know what I mean? A lot of the press around this movie has been talking about how, you know, insiders in the VFX houses have said that they don't want to work with Marvel anymore because of short deadlines, not enough time that they can spend on things, not being paid enough, and all issues like that. So I think we would be remiss talking about this without mentioning that. That's what I mean. This is a business model right now, and people are going to be put on crunch because of this business model. They've set themselves four films a year and God knows how many series. Yeah, it's four films a year starting next year. This year it's just three now that Ant-Man's been delayed. I still think it's become a little bit unsustainable. On the movie's merits, I had a really great time with it. Christian Bale's fantastic. Chris Hemsworth is funny, but he can nail the emotional moments when he really needs to. I love the fact that the Guardians appear for just the briefest possible moment in this movie and then just ditch Thor. That's great. It also happens to be right after the goats show up, so I love them. I think this is a very interesting exercise in fast-tracking a comics run, because this grabs basically the first half of what Jason Aaron did on Thor and smushed it down into the same story. And this is a brisk two hours. This is a rather quick and breezy movie that doesn't really slow down its pace. I love the Mighty Thor, the character of Jane Foster here. I've always loved the idea of the Mighty Thor. A Thor with more finesse and control than Odin's son has. Just fantastic concept. Yeah, I just had a really great time with it. I would have liked it to be more alike, the comics it's basing itself on, but I had a good time with it. Yeah, I had a really good time with it as well. It's not as good as Ragnarok, but it's better than the first two Thor movies. I... I had a lot of fun with it. I think it's sort of in the upper middle tier of MCU movies. As to the sustainability that you were talking about, Harley, I think that there is cause for concern. Just well, maybe not concern, but like cause to just be a little cautious, I suppose, to see how they really handle it. I mean, it's not going to be until next year, really, that we see the new state of being for the MCU. And, And when I look at a lot of the discussions around this movie around the mcu at the moment phase four i see what i and i'm not saying this is coming from you harley what you're talking about is is perfectly valid but i see coming from a lot of a lot of critics actually what seems to me to be concern trolling you know this oh is the mcu past it oh is the mcu underperforming blah 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 and there seems to be this weird narrative that Doctor Strange underperformed when it made almost a billion dollars. It made more than the first two Iron Man movies. It made more than the first two Captain America movies. It made more than all of the Thor movies. It made more than both of the uh, Guardians of the Galaxy movies. It made more than both of the Ant-Man movies. And I was actually looking at the box office numbers for the MCU as a whole last night because we will be covering the MCU in a little bit more detail in the coming weeks. They are what I'm currently watching at the moment, but it's actually not until Phase 3 that things start to regularly make a billion dollars. You know, 
the first few phases, it was like phase one, it was just the Avengers. Phase two, it was just Iron Man 3 and Avengers Age of Ultron. But then with phase three, I mean, that was a longer phase. There were more movies in it. But then that's, you also had the heavy hitters in there of Captain America Civil War of... Black Panther of the two Avengers movies, of the Spider-Man movies. And even then, Doctor Strange made more than the first Spider-Man movie, I'm pretty sure. So there's this like weird concern trolling. I'm just writing off any discussions of box office for 2021 because of that was just a, like a very strange year in general. And all three of all four of the Marvel movies released that year did way better. And there's even inconsistency in the way people like clutch their pearls over that. I mean, people want to want to hold up Shang-Chi as some sort of giant success and see the MCU can be really successful at the box office still when it's doing these, you know, big, brave things. But then they also want to call Eternals a failure when it made like $25 million less than Shang-Chi. So that doesn't add up. So there's just a weird, I, I don't know, I feel like the knives are out for the MCU in a weird way. I think that there are a lot of people who kind of resented having to pay attention to this that kind of are looking for anything they can to kind of justify bringing it down. Which is not to say that there aren't legitimate criticisms for these movies, just that the bulk of the discourse surrounding Phase 4 so far to me has been bizarre and not supported by fact, at least when it comes to commercial success. I mean, actual Subjective quality is always going to be more of a, of a personal thing. But it is something that I've been thinking about and is something I just wanted to address here. As for Thor itself, I mean, I know this movie has gotten a lot of criticism from some quarters for being silly. And I will back that up, but not as a criticism, as a compliment. Because I think that it's kind of great that these movies have just become a, a comedy series. I mean, that's the great thing that Taika Waititi has discovered, I think, about Thor is the weird sort of golden retriever thing that Chris Hemsworth has. <laughs> yeah. Thor's a himbo. Yeah, but he's also this good-natured, daggy kind of guy, and it's it's a great pivot for the series to take, and, and Taika Waititi's mm. really latched into that. He knows that Chris Hemsworth can be very funny, can be very charismatic, and he uses that in, in a very specific way. I mean, that's the thing. Thor's not an idiot. He's just... I don't know, a little literal-minded, a little unused to human societal structure and human social mores. He's a sheltered kid. Exactly. But I think that Jane Jane's return here is worthwhile. You get a good core of emotion from her relationship with Thor. I will back you guys up. Christian Bale is an excellent bad guy. Uh, they make a great use of the colour contrast with mm. him and his environment because he's, he's sort of this very pale, almost... Almost like Kratos from God of War, covered in the ashes of yeah. his dead family, kind of, kind of look. Mm. But he spends a lot of time in like what do they call it, the realm of shadows or the shadow realm yeah. or something. So there's a lot of like darkness that is contra that is contrasted with this sort of like ghostly white face looming out of the dark. His yellow eyes. Yeah. When he arrives, the first thing you see are the eyes. I love the fact that he can continue to give us egoless performance. Yeah. Yeah. He goes there, you know. That scene in the cage of him telling that story to the children is just... Cutting off heads! That sounds like fun! I want to have a try! But the movie itself sort of... It continues what Phase 4 has been doing. The point of Phase 4, in my view, so far at least, going up and out in terms of expanding the universe. It expands it 
this time into the realm of these idea of gods and these idea of well basically aliens that were the inspiration for gods and and so that it folds in this whole other pantheon of things you've got russell crowe playing zeus doing his best <laughs> worst greek accent it's barely an attempt at greek at some time oh it's it's all over the place it's it's greek it's italian it's some weird european hitchhiker that hasn't been home in 20 years like <laughs> like that's what it sounds like really and i wouldn't want it any other way yeah exactly that's what makes it work that's why it works and and that's why it's funny i mean taika watiti has talked about how he wasn't quite sure where the audiences would go with it they filmed all of his scenes twice once in a, in a more british accent and once in mm. in the one that ended up in the film and they ended up going with the one in the film but like it's it's clear that the point is that it's a bad accent. I mean, that's sort of the point of the character is you, you sort of have this image of Zeus in your mind. He's Charlton Heston, he's Liam Neeson, and then in rocks this guy, and that's the joke of it. Yeah. I love it because why would that version of Zeus actually have a Greek accent? Yeah. It's not like he's actually Greek. He's Olympian. And, and even then, they still give Russell Crowe some moments where you're like, oh, shit, he's Zeus. Yeah. Yeah. There are these flashes of intelligence and competence underneath it all. And that's the thing. I mean, this is a really amusing script. It's not as consistent as Ragnarok, but it's frequently mm. laugh out loud funny. Like the theatre we were in, we're getting a lot of fun out of it. Yeah. But it saves moments for seriousness and mm. and pain and darkness in a way that gives it heft. And it gives the whole thing a soul and a, a, a sense of purpose. I do think it's a little clumsy sometimes, but I think it fits mm. in... What, broadly speaking, has been Thor's arc of of loss over the course of the MCU. I mean, Loki, Odin, Asgard itself, failing to stop Thanos. You know, you should have gone for the head. The bit after the... But like the introductory scene is Gore and his origins, but the scene right after that is, like, Korg running down <laughs> everything Thor has lost. Yeah. And it is hilarious. But I mean, they 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 try and pair him with with Gore in that way. They they try and like have them be sort of mirrors of each other in a way that is not altogether effective, but is effective enough for me to appreciate. But they do match up Jane and Gore in a really interesting way as well. Mortals granted exceptional godlike power, mm. and what that does to not only one's physical form but their psychology. Yeah. Yeah. And there's the fact that also Jane is going through cancer treatment, yeah. which is an important element of the character and important for the comics. Yeah, it was just a good time, honestly. I also saw some other movies in cinemas. To start off with, I saw Elvis, the biopic directed by Baz Luhrmann. And if you will indulge me, I can read to you the full review that I have written of Elvis that can be found on my blog, exitthroughthecandycounter.wordpress.com. And you can find more writing like this and, and shorter stuff as well up there, all of the movies that I see. This is what I've written for Elvis. I can confirm that Elvis is a Baz Luhrmann movie. It features everything you might expect from the director of Moulin Rouge and Romeo plus Juliet. All the style, eccentricity and over-the-top theatricality that has made the man his name. But this Elvis Presley biopic isn't a musical. Let's get that out of the way right now. Lerman displays a canny use of Elvis tunes to underscore 
significant moments, usually rearranged in a dramatic new fashion or paired with some self-consciously modern bits and bobs that give a new flavour to old standards. But this is a film more in tune with Bohemian Rhapsody than Rocketman, and I can't help but find that disappointing. Lerman approaches his work with considerable creativity and skill, but in the broadest of strokes, this is the same biopic about a famous singer we've seen many times before, just with less restraint. This is a film that refuses to kill any of its darlings, that cannot stomach losing any of the copious detail it has assembled for our perusal. The result is an extremely entertaining picture that is nonetheless overstuffed and a tad too familiar for a movie with Baz Luhrmann's name on it. Luhrmann's best effect, his most genius choice, is in the casting of Austin Butler as the titular crooner. Best known for his work on short-lived TV shows like The Carrie Diaries and The Shannara Chronicles, Butler proves more than ready for the spotlight. He inhabits the iconography of his role with the naturalistic skill that keeps Elvis's humanity in sight. It would be so easy for a lesser actor to get lost in caricature. So distinct is Presley's particular aura and public image, but Butler takes a firm grip on the role and refuses to be shaken by it. It's assured, precise, and impressive. Best of all, he sings. Baz Luhrmann has taken an unusual but effective approach to the musical performances. He has Butler sing them himself during the first half of the film, depicting Elvis as a young man, but by the time the story reaches the 1970s and the character has reached drunken middle age, he switches over to Presley's own archival recordings. It's a neat trick, one that subconsciously communicates the passage of time and sidesteps the inherent complications of asking a young man to sing like a burnt-out 40-year-old. I mentioned the passage of time just then, and if the film has one truly damaging flaw, it is in its sheer breadth of scope. Lerman has been insistent on covering Elvis's whole life in 159 minutes, and the task is simply unmanageable. When I say whole life, I mean it. We see everything from Elvis becoming enamoured with African-American gospel music as a child, to the puffy, drug-addled figure the man would become during his residency in Las Vegas. The script written by Lerman alongside Sam Brommel, Craig Pierce, and Jeremy Doner, simply cannot accommodate that amount of material and still save room to breathe. The movie rockets along, skipping huge swaths of story. Elvis's acting career is covered in a 30-second montage, and the film skips from the 1950s through to 1968 in less than five minutes. Presley's weird, late-in-life communications with a bemused Richard Nixon don't even rate a mention. In an attempt to give some focus to the massive canvas, Lerman has funneled the story through narration from Elvis's controversial manager, Colonel Tom Parker. Played by Tom Hanks under pounds of prosthetic makeup, the Colonel is one of Lerman's most unusual flourishes. The whole film is presented as Parker's life flashing before his eyes at the moment of his death in 1997. Teetering on the brink in the back of an ambulance, Parker presents the story to us from a weird limbo realm that resembles a Las Vegas casino. There, he puts his own spin on events, trying to convince us that he's been hard done by in all of the Elvis biographies over the years. Lerman clearly doesn't believe that. Parker is an unreliable narrator, played as a grotesquerie by Hanks in a Dutch accent so cartoonish that it threatens to become Transylvanian. <laughs> He's a nasty piece of work, almost satanic in his presentation, the snake in the garden that tempts and manipulates Elvis into his ultimate destruction. It's extremely over the top, 
both in conception and performance. One of the most Baz Luhrmann touches in this very Baz Luhrmann movie. Hanks goes too hard. The performance trends towards the ridiculous. I'd be willing to bet that's at the behest of his director, however, and it's not a totally misjudged instinct. Despite its ghoulishness, the performance achieves an odd harmonisation with Lerman's usual fever pitch, and the end result is one that never works in isolation, but mostly does in context. Parker's self-serving narration from the space between spaces gives the director a helpful crutch to vomit out exposition as well. The number of corners this conceit is tasked with cutting is extraordinary. Important pieces of backstory and narrative webbing are dropped in a line or two of Hanks's Carnival Barker staccato, names, backstories and relationships threaded in with a breathlessness that approaches narrative malpractice. The old adage of show don't tell is not something Lerman and his co-writers have any time for. The script must move at a breakneck speed if it is to get us to Elvis's deathbed before the credits roll. This Cliffsnote style of abridgment is merely a symptom of Lerman's massive appetite. That decision to bite off more than he could comfortably chew, along with, I presume, the need to secure song rights from the Presley estate, has also resulted in the film doggedly avoiding any of the harder-to-stomach elements of the Elvis legacy. A case in point, the fact that he began dating his wife when he was in his mid-twenties and she was 14 isn't even mentioned. That whole part of the film takes a see-no-evil, hear-no-evil, speak-no-evil approach to the topic. A scene in which Elvis passionately kisses his paramour as she complains about how her parents disapprove of their relationship is handled with such an unquestioningly straight face as to be outright creepy when you're aware that Priscilla was, at that stage, almost half a decade from being able to vote. <laughs> These are the subtleties that Lerman has been forced to sacrifice on the altar of expediency, and he is not above having his characters simply spit out unnatural lines of dialogue for the sole purpose of centering the viewer. It's clunky, but it's necessary. Even with those shortcuts, the film has still had to be separated into two very different halves to remain digestible. The first is superior, because it covers the stuff that the screenplay has the most to say about. The early years of Presley's career, laced with the occasional flashback to the singer as a child, is the era of Elvis where Lerman finds the most fertile ground. He takes time and care to centre the black musicians who inspired Presley and whose songs he frequently covered. Hound Dog is not Elvis's song, it is Big Mama Thornton's. He makes explicit the connection between Elvis's musical style and African-American gospel music. It's a vital reframing of the Elvis myth that takes pains to reinsert the crucial figures of colour who have been ignored by so many accounts of Presley's life. Lerman makes sure we understand that a big part of Elvis Presley's musical legacy comes from his adoption of black artists' music and performance styles for palatable consumption by white audiences. The director also takes the time to examine Elvis's willful subversion of archaic societal strictures, such as his complete contempt for racial segregation, as well as the daredevil aesthetic of his cool clothes and slicked-back hair. Lerman has the most fun with the wiggling. Elvis's famous pelvic gyrations are handled with a tongue-in-cheek glee as the film recounts how authorities threaten to charge the singer for obscene behaviour and boycott campaigns were launched to prevent his appearance on television. The invention of Elvis Presley as a sex symbol is explained by Parker's voiceover in one of many moments where, despite all the bullshit, our otherwise unreliable narrator will come up with a genuine point. According to Parker, 
The man's undulating is an integral part of his appeal. The key to a legendary act, the colonel explains, is when it makes the audience feel a feeling they're slightly ashamed or confused for enjoying. Lerman even goes so far as offering a visual comparison to a carnival geek, one of those guys that'd bite their head off a live chicken in front of a crowd of half-horrified, half-amused onlookers. It isn't the most flattering comparison, but perhaps it's apt. Both Elvis and the Chicken Chompers attracted attention through the way their acts breached societal norms. In any case, Lerman's favourite topic is that of Elvis as a trigger of sexual awakening among young women and, as one sly moment stops to acknowledge, more than a few young men. He vamps it up visually. During Elvis's first on-screen performance, the women in the audience react with an orgasmic approval that overtakes the auditorium. Lerman zooms in on fidgeting hands and bit lips, the pressure building in each girl's reddening face until they can do nothing but stand and shriek. It's horniness as a communicable disease. These are the slightly naughty bits of business that Lerman thrives at, and they are the movie's most genius touch. The second half of the film has nothing as incisive. The film's creativity doesn't fail it, but it is hamstrung by the historical record. The story of Elvis Presley is, broadly speaking, the same story we have seen in dozens of other musical biopics. He gets very famous, acquires a posse of enabling hangers-on who do not have his best interest in mind, gets addicted to various intoxicating substances, and then flames out spectacularly. The film handles that plotline well, but there's no getting around the fact that at this point it would be more surprising to see a movie about a legendary singer who wasn't a drug addict. If you're like me, you start to wish that Lerman actually had made a musical, that he'd taken the Rocketman tack and threaded in a bunch of fantasy song and dance numbers to make the material a little sprightlier. Instead, he makes do with an increased focus on the deteriorating Elvis Parker dynamic, though he stages some truly spectacular on-stage numbers along the way. In a sense, this familiarity is fitting. Elvis Presley is the prototypical rock star. It seems weirdly sensible for his fall from grace to have so moulded the template of every other musical biopic. Still, it's a reality that the screenplay is unable to find its way around, and the result is a film that ends with far less momentum than it began with. Baz Luhrmann's Elvis should have been an eight-hour miniseries. There's a lot about the film to love. It has a sterling performance by Austin Butler, it handles the music with style, and when it sinks its teeth into a topic with body, it makes a full meal of it. Yet its eyes are too big for its stomach. The sprawling tale of Elvis Presley is far too great a topic for so enthusiastic a filmmaker as Lerman to completely work through in just a few hours. The director's style is too berserk, and his commitment too unyielding. He wants to cover everything, and in this format he can't. Someone with focus and pragmatism might have been able to whittle the life of the king of rock and roll into a feature that didn't constantly feel in danger of bursting at the seams, but that person is not Baz Luhrmann. The result is a paradox. Lerman's passion-led approach is responsible both for Elvis's greatest flaws as well as everything that makes it so compelling. It's a fun and exciting production, but it is trapped in a narrative straitjacket that ultimately prevents the film from achieving true greatness. So there you go. That's my thoughts on Elvis. Do you guys have any additional questions? What's your favourite Elvis song? I don't know. It sort of gets in, like, I adore Unchained Melody, but I also hesitate to call that an Elvis song because of its mm. origins elsewhere. I actually found out, like, just reading a little bit of after seeing this movie, because I do feature Unchained Melody in it, it was the theme for a little scene prison movie from the 50s called Unchained, hence Unchained Melody. But 
I don't know. In terms of the Elvisy Elvis songs, I think I'd probably go with Burning Love. I do love his version of Bridge Over Troubled Water as well. For me, it's Can't Help Falling in Love. Because I think it just sort of sums up that feeling in a very beautiful way. I quite like Are You Lonesome Tonight? Mm. I'm actually excited to see this movie because I've listened to some of the music and I like how Baz Luhrmann takes modern day music and transplants it back into the past. I think that's a really cool touch. It's this situation of giving a shorthand to the audience of this music that you're hearing now is what the big music for the people back then was like. I also saw two other films in cinemas. First off, Jurassic World Dominion, a science fiction action-adventure film directed by Colin Trevorrow. It picks up four years after the events of Fallen Kingdom and Owen, played by Chris Pratt, and Claire, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, are protecting their, their adoptive child, Maisie, played by Isabella Sermon, who, if you recall, is a clone with, like, I, look, it's, it's moronic, it's, it's whatever. But anyways, the people looking for Maisie have found her, and they abduct her, and they've got to go after, the parents have got to go after her. Meanwhile, there's Ellie Sattler, played by Laura Dern, Alan Grant, played by Sam Neill, and Ian Malcolm, played by Jeff Goldblum, who are dragged back into the franchise to deal with some sort of, like, farming agricultural companies like release of wasps that destroy fields this is by far the worst in the franchise i i don't understand how you fuck this up i don't understand how you get to the end of fallen kingdom and you're like dinosaurs are out in the world now and then the next movie you put them back in a goddamn park like i don't know like why are we not in like small towns overrun with raptors why are we not in like t-rexes walking down the streets in new york city like why are we back in another freaking park? <laughs> Why are we not watching Brontosaurus just moving herds? Exactly. Just everywhere. Yeah. Why Why are we not looking at, like, pterodactyls attacking jets or, you know, the giant herbivores blocking highways, causing traffic jams? But I just kept waiting for this movie to do anything interesting, and it never happened. The characters are skin deep. All of the returning characters have lost all of the personality that made them special. There's no point whatsoever in bringing back the characters from the original movies. They don't even intersect with Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard until the finale. It is interminably long. There's no reason for this to be two and a half hours. It doesn't have the plot for it. It has the plot for maybe an episode of a Saturday morning Jurassic Park cartoon show. And not even like a special two-part story, but like a standard 22-minute episode. It's just generic repeats of prior actions and ideas. It's them just doing everything that they've always done over again, like they're afraid to try anything new. They bring back the Alan Grant and the rest of them and Sam Neill, Laura Dern, Jeff Goldblum, because that's the template, isn't it? Like you, you bring back the originals when you're doing these revivals and it just doesn't have an original idea in its head. It's copying itself. It's copying everyone else that's doing the same sort of revival of an old franchise. This, this to me is really disappointing because those trailers were really promising. Uh, it's not good. It has a terrible script. People don't talk like they talk in this. They talk like robots in this. There are some decent practical effects. Like they use animatronics for some of the smaller dinosaurs, which is cool. Uh, I'll give it that. And Campbell Scott is giving a fun performance, even though the character's kind of terrible. He's playing the main human villain, who is a very thinly veiled Tim Cook proxy. 
And I gotta ask, why does Hollywood hate that guy so much? Like, why is every time you see a tech guy, an evil, an evil tech businessman in a movie, it's Tim Cook? Yeah, why, why not like Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg? Like, not to say that those people are evil. I don't know them, but there's a swath of media yeah. figures that you could be doing. And, those. Me- and, and media figures who have done more immediately objectionable things than Tim yeah. Cook has done in terms of... Like Martin Screlly. Why do we keep coming back to this guy? I mean, I watched Ron's Gone Wrong a while back, and that's like evil Tim Cook trying to steal all your children's data. I mean, <laughs> like, what is it? Like, did, did he run over, like, some famous producer's dog or something? Like, what's the deal here? But no, I don't recommend Jurassic World Dominion. It is dull nonsense. I next saw Lightyear. It is an animated science fiction film directed by Angus McLean. It is a spin-off, question mark, of Toy Story. Basically, the only connection to Toy Story it really has is it opens with a title card that says, In 1995, a boy named Andy saw a movie that made him want to buy a toy, and this is that movie. So this is the in-universe movie in the Toy Story universe that inspired the Buzz Lightyear toy. Pretty hardcore, though. (laughs) The director of the movie said that this is the explanation of that. In Andy's universe, Lightyear came out in 1986. He first discovered it on VHS. The license went to a weird toy company that had bad distribution and only made one of the four waves planned. A few years later, a more kid-friendly 2D cartoon was made. Thinkway got the license. Buzz, The Buzz and Zerg toys seen in Toy Story were from a subsequent cartoon that did not have the rest of the characters. The corporation wanted to reimagine them with alien sidekicks geared for the five to seven year old demographic. So the Lightyear cartoon. Just say that it's a modern reboot. Basically, they have just explained away in interviews all of the weird story inconsistencies between this and the actual backstory of Buzz Lightyear. I would believe, if someone told me that this was not a Buzz Lightyear movie to start off with, it was an original space movie that, that some guy in a suit insisted Buzz Lightyear be forced into, like, a year and a half before it was released. Like, I would believe that because there's very little here that connects it. It's set in the future. It follows Buzz Lightyear, now voiced by Chris Evans. He's a ranger on a colony ship. And after he makes a mistake, the ship breaks down on a, on an alien planet. He keeps trying to find a way to get a hyperdrive working again and get off planet. But to do the tests that he needs to do, he needs to take the spaceship up into space and test out the hyperdrive, swing it around the sun and, and land again. And it doesn't work, but because he's traveling, so quickly, time dilation means that he is aging a lot slower than the people on the ground when he gets back down like four years have passed while he's been gone for five minutes. And one time he comes back and there's evil robots that have taken over the colony and he's got to team up with a bunch of trainees to stop them. And I'm forced to ask myself, who is this for? Because the Pixar animated nature of it would suggest children. But that the whole plot is based on time dilation. <laughs> like, this is... It's a, it's a hardcore premise. This is like if Christopher Nolan made a Toy Story movie. Like, Yeah, I, I read about who Zerg is in this movie, and I'm like... It's complicated. How can this be for it's kids? It's incredibly complicated. Like I said, it's inconsistent with the backstory expressed in the Toy Story movies. I don't think Andy would watch this and be like, I want a toy. Andy would watch this and be like, what? Yeah, it's way more complicated, like, 
proper sci-fi nonsense that <laughs> explains who Zerg is. And like even the like the title card at the beginning. I mean, not only is that a a weird naughty explanation to try and communicate to a child, but they can't even read that because they're like five. Like <laughs> who's the audience here? Is the audience us? Maybe. Maybe. I mean, it's not a comedy. It's not even an adventure, really. It's kind of a weird space drama. (laughs) And it does struggle to achieve the same charm and personality that you expect from a Pixar movie. But it it succeeds best with Socks, uh, voiced by Peter Sohn. He is sort of a, a robot cat that Buzz is gifted with who has just got this very cheerful, urbane voice coming out of him. Isn't, like, they explain Socks as space travel's really hard on people, both physically and, more importantly, psychologically. Socks is a companion. Actually, no. Well, he becomes on Buzz's side, but he starts off as, like, a... Calling him a spy device to spy on Buzz is probably too strong a term, but basically he is he is given to Buzz to keep an eye on him. It looks good, but the environments lack creativity. They seem a little flat sometimes. Got a very strong voice cast. There was the perfect role for a Tim Allen cameo that they didn't take, and I think that's actually disappointing because, like, you will know it when you see it, and it's the perfect opportunity to bring in Tim Allen. Look, I I will give this movie a lot of credit for the swings that it's taking. It is doing something different and strange and unusual. And it's like a a big move for a billion dollar franchise to take, to, to decide to be this weird and odd and complicated. It's not always successful, but I really admire what's behind it. Buzz Lightyear basically being... Like, if you crossed Ad Astra and Interstellar together. Kind of. It makes me wonder what they would do with Woody. Would that be, like, the Unforgiven crossed with Django Unchained? It's like True Grit. True Grit except Woody instead of Jeff Bridges. (laughs) Woody's Roundup is Bone Tomahawk crossed with Stagecoach. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) You can't tell me that wouldn't work. Woody lassoing a person and strangling them to death. Look, it's a fascinating movie. I just... I question the business sense of it. (laughs) Well, honestly, it sounds like it's right up my alley. Mm. Yeah. I also lastly watched two movies at home. First off is the 2008 remake of Prom Night. It is a slow... Oh, God. (laughs) Jesus Christ. Yes, the movie you watched in the teens club on the cruise. Yep. It is a slasher (laughs) movie directed by Nelson McCormick, and it is very loosely, I say again, very loosely, based on the 1980 film directed by Paul Lynch. It's set three years after a teenager named Donna Keppel, played by Brittany Snow, is attacked by a psycho teacher of hers who's fallen in love with her, Richard Fenton. He's played by Jonathan Jonathan Shake. And now he's escaped from prison and he's out to get her, but she's at her prom. And so it's up to Detective Wynn, played by a slumming at Idris Elba, to protect her and save her from this guy. This is barely a remake. It's got, like, nothing in common with it story-wise, character-wise. The only, There's two consistencies between the original 1980 movie and this. Well, actually, no, there's three. There is a prom, there is a serial killer, and it's not very good. It's a real nothing of a movie. It's tepid. It's so low energy. The characters are all one note. The plot is the same slasher thing we've seen a thousand times before. It can't summon any energy whatsoever. 
there's just so much time hanging around while these kids party at the prom and the killer, you know, treads water, kills some time by just going after randoms. It's one of horror's least interesting villains. I don't even know why yeah. he kills half of these people. Like, there's no point for him to do it. Like, Because I'm insane. But he's a guy with a motive and he's, like, making it more difficult for himself. He has a very specific obsession. Yeah. Which is, like, not appropriate for the teens club on the <laughs> cruise that we went on. Yeah. Someone misjudged that severely. But it's not even entertaining in its badness the way that My Bloody Valentine was. It is just boring. Lastly, I saw a movie called The Poughkeepsie Tapes. It is a mockumentary horror film directed by John Eric Dowdle, and it is a fake documentary about a discovery of a collection of home videos made by an unidentified serial killer played by Ben Mesmer. This was a movie that was made independently. It was shown at the Tribeca Film Festival, and MGM picked it up there for distribution on a wide platform in 2008. But it was dropped and it sat on the shelf for years and it really actually became sort of a cause celeb, a a legendary thing among horror fans because it sat on a shelf for literally almost a decade. It was supposed to come out in a wide release in 2008. It didn't come out until Scream Factory managed to get the home video rights in 2017. So it was a long time. But the people who had seen it some of them at the festival screenings, others less legal methods. I mean, they described a really tense, psychologically nasty horror movie. And so it became sort of a legendary thing. And having seen it now, having imported the Scream Factory Blu-ray, because it's still impossible to find in any way, shape or form in Australia, unless you're going to import a physical media disc, I can confirm that it is a really tense, psychologically nasty horror movie. It's not graphic in terms of images. It's the ideas. It's expressing some really fucked up stuff. It's like criminal minds on acid. It's the most brilliant serial killer ever who is just messing around with police and has all of these like weird dominoes set up to to do all of these crazy things. I mean, it's small things too. Like one of the creepiest moments for me is like one of these videos, home videos that the killer's making. He goes up to the mother of one of his victims on the street and basically says, oh, whatever I can do to help, da-da-da. And over the course of this conversation, he basically drops the hint that he's the killer. She realises it and, like, reacts to it, and he laughs and runs away. Like, something like that is just... I mean, that's icky and in a way that is not bloody, it's not violent, but is just, like, like poking the bruise. It's... Yeah. It's evil. The story itself is is pretty thin. It's very episodic. You do start to wish that the film had something smarter to say. It It is extremely effective in the stuff that it's doing, but it can just feel like an exhibition of awfulness at times. It does work better, though, than something like Toolbox Massacre 2, which was also that. I love this movie. It sounds weird to say it because it is such a, such a nasty film, but I, I think it's a really strong piece of work. And... Toolbox Massacre 2, I found awful, just a piece of trash. And why? That's an interesting question that I'm not sure I have the answer to. Why do we find this so compelling? And if there is a point to the movie, it's that. What is it about serial killers and true crime that gets us? Why is this interesting to us? Why is this frightening to us? Why is this something we seek out? If there's anything to what the movie is saying, that that's what it is. It's the utter randomness 
of this guy. He is every serial killer all at once. He changes his MO frequently to sort of mess with police. He's got these huge plans and like they found this collection of tapes because he wanted them to find them. You know, it's a taunt. And we know from the very start, because the whole thing is framed as a documentary about the discovery of these tapes. We know from the start that he's not identified. He's not been captured. He's still out there. And that stuff's all really interesting. It's basically the serial killer in microcosm. It's all of it at once. And that's really interesting. I do sometimes wish it had some more specific stuff to say, but the actual like thrust behind it is is pretty good. It can be a little too try hard at times. Some scenes work, others verge on the ridiculous in terms of like just how how far it's going in in an effort to be you know, for this guy to be weird and creepy and sinister. I mean, that's partly due to the very low budget and the class of actor they've been able to hire as well. It does kind of putter out towards the end. It, it needed a final twist of the knife where it just sort of fades out. It should go out with more of a bang. But it is a really interesting film. It's a tense film. It's quite something. And honestly, I found myself thinking... There'd be like a fantastic Mindhunter-style television limited series if they ever wanted to return to this IP. The Poughkeepsie tapes, and instead of a found footage thing, it was like detectives investigating and engaging with this serial killer whose tapes have been found. I mean, give it a bit more structure, make it a cat and mouse, and there could really be something here that could justify bringing it back. Because I know that they did have conversations that they ended up not being able to find a, a new pitch for to really justify returning to the to the Poughkeepsie tapes. But I think there's something here and and definitely the movie as is. There is a reason why it captivated the minds of horror fans for so long. There is a reason like it's it's not a letdown after all that build up. Um it's flawed, but it's it's got that kernel of just something deeply unsettling to it. But that is me done for the week. What about you guys? What have you been watching? So this week Harley and I have watched the first two episodes of the new season of What We Do in the Shadows, which we won't go too far into. Suffice to say, Vampire Nightclub. That's the direction this season's going in, and I'm here for it. Based on the one from Blade with, like, the blood guys and shit? Yeah, which is funny because Wesley Snipes is canonically a day-walking vampire. Yeah. So that's interesting. That's a fun show. I love it. It's great. We also watched another Amityville movie. And this is one that I did not find on Tubi. I instead found it on YouTube. The whole thing on YouTube. It is Amityville No Escape, released in 2016. A found footage Amityville movie directed by Henri Couteau. We follow two separate plot lines. One from 2016 and the other from 1997. In the modern day, quote-unquote... We follow young filmmaker George Harris, who is making a documentary about fear. To explore the topic, he goes on a camping trip in the woods near the Amityville house with his sister and some friends of his. You don't really need to know their names. What you expect to happen happens. The interesting part of this film is the sequences in 1997. We follow Lena, Julia Gomez, who moves in to 112 Ocean Avenue in Amityville, New York. The house is dilapidated and full of objects left by previous tenants, and as the lonely Lena works on repairing and cleaning, she records a video diary for her absent husband, who is a soldier in the US Army. 
worsening paranormal phenomena start to show that this isn't the fresh start you might think it is. All of the interesting stuff here in this movie happens in 1997, which is amazing when you figure out that all of the sequences in 1997, all of the scenes with Julia Gomez were filmed in one day. That's a hard day of work. Which is amazing because the sequences with Julia Gomez as Lena are held together beautifully by her performance. It is the best performance I've seen in one of these modern Amityvilles. It puts the rest of the performances to shame. Obviously, talking about the modern Amityvilles as in the ones that don't have a production company connected to them. All of the more independent ones. Awakening is its own thing. Awakening is its own thing, which we'll get to next week. This is fantastic. I loved the performances here, specifically from Gomez. And this is what the series should be. Placing people into the house and having it play on their minds. Having interesting twists on it. The house that they go to in this movie actually looks decently like the Amityville house. It's obviously not. I love that this is like a recurring barometer for you. Your your continuing frustration about the accuracy of the house as, as some sort of indicator of quality. I think it is. Also, as much as the stuff in 1997 is more interesting, the stuff in 2016 is perfectly acceptable too. It's very obvious that actors were given multiple takes. Whereas with some of these other ones, it's sort of one and done. You gotta get this shit out like you're on a conveyor belt. But this is actually, this actually has well-considered performances, has characters let me say that again, Lawson. It has <laughs> characters, people with motivations, people with worldviews, and people with relationships to each other. Yeah, actual goddamn backstory is nice. The sister mentions George's father, and you, you see him actually sort of sit up a little straighter and tense up as if he's about to say something, but is just holding it back. And mm. it's those moments where something like Amityville Playhouse... It boggles the mind that they're in the same franchise, because the quality is so, so different. For a cheap, amateur movie, it's nice to see acting. Exactly. Which we really haven't gotten in the rest of these more modern fests. This is almost like if you got Blair Witch Project, not as good as it, of course, but you merged it with Paranormal Activity. That's like the two different formats that they're using here. There's the the video diaries from 1997, and the camcorder footage from 2016. And it works in this really interesting way. Yeah. The framing is like 4.3 camcorder quality from 1997. Yeah. They shot it on an actual camera from 1997, and that comes with all of the limitations on audio. Yeah. Video. There's an attention to detail here, and an attention to character that I appreciate a lot. Obviously, there are some moments where it becomes a little too long in the tooth. The middle portion of the movie could be shorter, but they do a good job at editing it together. The original cut of this movie didn't have any of the 1997 stuff, and I like that it's added in here because it actually has the past and the present speak to each other in terms mm. of what is being discussed in each segment. And... That works well. Obviously, though, we're grading on a curve. <laughs> I would have liked a better ending. Yes, the ending is a little weak. The present-day spooky stuff is kind of lame. 
there's a guy in the woods looking for his daughter who is dressed like Ronnie DeFeo, even though he is not in the least bit threatening. He's probably the worst performance in the movie, and he's only in, like, two scenes. Yeah. So, if you want a modern, quote-unquote, modern Amityville movie, but you don't want to give money to a big corporation, I guess, you can find this on YouTube. Amityville, no escape. It's fine. It's fine. Put that on the poster. We were praising it, but like John said, it's grading on a curve. It's ultimately fine. We also watched The Godfather. It's directed by Francis Ford Coppola. So as you can see, very different kind of (laughs) experiences we've had this week. And the one I talk about after this is going to be wildly even more different than that. This movie is the story of Vito Corleone, played by Marlon Brando the aging patriarch of an organized crime dynasty in post-war New York, as he transfers control of his clandestine empire to his reluctant youngest son, Michael, played by a baby-faced Al Pacino. What can you say about The Godfather that hasn't already been said? It is... It's the mobster movie, you know? It, it's it's the inspiration for Sopranos, inspiration for Boardwalk Empire. It's the, it's the inspiration for everything in that genre. It's the inspiration for that one episode of... The Simpsons. Oh, more than one. They have the orange scene in that episode where Mo saves Maggie. The whole idea of Fat Tony is based on this movie. Zootopia references the Godfather. You come to me on the day of my daughter's wedding. But what's most interesting here is that this is not a movie set in the 1920s. This is coming up to the end of the golden age of the New York Mafia. It is the introduction of drugs into the criminal ecosystem. It is the change, that handover between the old way of doing things and the new way of doing things. It is a story about war, conflict, family, and Marlon Brando is fantastic here. It's before he started going really crazy with his acting choices. It's measured, it's precise, and when he has the whole... Look how they massacred my boy thing. That's a meme now, but it is such a touching scene. Mm. I love the first opening sequence where he's talking to The Undertaker. Basically, Vito's whole thing is about being treated like a friend, treated with respect, where it feels like Michael going forward is going to be very, very different to that. Al Pacino's really, really good here, especially in those little moments before acts of violence. Yeah, the diner scene. Right before he fires the gun in the diner scene, he's doing a lot with his eyes, and it just shows that like Al Pacino is a fantastic actor and has been for a very long time. I am looking forward to watching the rest of these. It's my first time seeing The Godfather, and as film buffs, I'm actually really upset with myself it has taken us this long. You can find The Godfather Parts 1 and 2 on Paramount+. Plus. I don't know about number 3, because number 3 has its new version that came out in 2020, The Coda. Yeah. Standard Part 3 is on Stan, The Coda version is on Prime Video, Binge, and Foxtel now. The version of the film we watched is the most recent remaster, and it looks really, really good. Oh, yeah. You can still tell it's from 1972, but... The restoration is just remarkable. You're going to watch that miniseries, The Offer, on the making of? This is kind of leading up to that. Okay. So, the last movie we have to talk about is... It's called Mad God. It is directed by Phil Tippett. It is a Shudder original. 
A corroded diving bell descends amidst the ruined city, and the assassin emerges from it to explore a labyrinth of bizarre landscapes inhabited by freakish denizens, because that makes sense. It's as though Fritz Lang's Metropolis did the fusion dance from Dragon Ball Z with Silent Hill, but one of them got a step wrong along the way and they came out all fucked up, insides outside, and begging for death. And that's just the first half. <laughs> I'm talking inspirations from Paradise Lost, Dante's Inferno, Hieronymus Bosch, Peter Bruegel, Francis Bacon, and no small measure of Francisco Goya. You know, all the happy side of art. I'm sorry, I'm just looking at the parents' guide for this on IMDb. In the sex and nudity section, it says, a creature is shown pooping. Yes. Yep. Yeah, but, like, the categorization of that is what troubles me. <laughs> yeah. Several of the guys here are shown pooping. This also happens to be a masterclass in how stop motion has not been living up to its full potential yet. The film was first screened December 11th in 2021 for the festival circuit, but came out for wider release in 2022, so it counts as a 2022 release. The film took 30 years to complete. Jesus. And a year before it was finished, Phil Tippett, the guy who's basically the author in charge of this, had a mental breakdown causing him to go into a psych ward. That's how he tells it. This is as if you got a movie like The Dark Crystal, right? And just decided to go, I'm a misanthrope now. I hate everything. That's where I know that name from. He was a, an effects guy on a bunch of the... It was Star Wars, Jurassic Park, Robocop. Mm-hmm. My descriptions simply do not do this thing justice. It is... It is so much, you know? When we were watching it, I was just sitting there just in awe. Yeah. The scale that Tippett was able to accomplish here, the... The artistry of all of the horrible things that he's showing us. You see, guys, and that's really all the only way I can describe the figures we see in this movie, it's just a bunch of guys shitting and dying, and... <laughs> There are interstitial bits of live-action performance, and it just feels weird. There's, like, one guy who's full-on Howard Hughesing it with the long finger and toenails. Yeah. Sending the assassins down into the pit, I suppose. This movie is an encapsulation of everything that Phil Tippett is afraid of, everything that scares him, everything that pisses him off, everything yeah. that makes him sad. We are seeing the nightmare scape of 30 years' worth of experience. But Phil Tippett actually seems like a pretty rad dude. Yeah. In all the interviews I've seen, he said he went into a particularly dark period in the production of this in 2016. Yeah. Because of the way he saw the world heading. And there's one specific, just a couple of frames of mm -hmm. this movie that exemplify how he views how things turned out in the 2016 American election. Yep. I'll just leave it at that. Because I really don't want to describe what happens. But... This is like a 30-year-long dip into Phil Tippett's nightmares. It could all be summed up by, like, the one spoken line in this movie. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Literally the only spoken line in the movie. Oh, no. It's beautiful, grotesque, hard to watch, but you can't look away. I don't know why this just flashed into my head. And I know you would have mentioned it, it was the case, but I kind of love, would have loved if that one spoken line was like an incredibly famous actor for no reason. It was like Tom Hanks or something and speaking the only line in the movie. Unfortunately not. Missed opportunity. This is 
art. Yeah. Like, as blunt as I can put it, this is what art's for? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm not making a joke. This is about nightmares in the same way that other art is about dreams. Exploring ideals. This is about exploring the shit, the pain, the loss, the fear, the control society has over us, the rage against that machine. It's it's punk and sad and pain. It's mad. Yeah, it's so hardcore, it belongs in an art gallery. Like, it should be playing round the clock, just being projected onto a wall in an art gallery somewhere, because that's sort of what it is. It's... the entire thing is tone. And John's not kidding. This would actually play really well in a... like a progressive... Yeah, MoMA. GOMA sort of situation, just playing 24-7. It would play because the sheer artistry on display here. The details on all of the miniatures, the details in all of the effects, the scenes, the backgrounds, holy Mm. shit! And how fluid the movement is. Even the live-action actors look like they're stop-motioned. Such a level of detail. I don't know if I can recommend this movie, though. (laughs) Okay. Like all art, this is purely subjective. But I don't know if I can suggest this to my dear sweet parents. But I know for a fact, Lawson, that I can suggest this to you. Shadow in the Cloud. Alright. Like I said to John after we finished it, this is the kind of movie that tells you, if you recommend it to somebody, you will either gain a lifelong friend or burn that friendship to the fucking ground. You will never hear from them again. Yeah, yeah this is one of those <laughs> crucible moments. Mad God is brilliant. Yeah. It simply is brilliant art. And for a work that took 30 years to make and perfect, I just hope Philip Tipper can sleep. Yeah, hope he can rest. I would love to see him do something similar again, but I don't know what that would do to him. In an interview... I read the interview asked him, so do you have any other projects on the line? And he said, no, not a chance. This is a work of mad genius. You can find it on Shudder, which is absolutely the place it belongs. So that's what we've seen within the week. We will now play for you the trailer to Doomsday. This is the end of the world! It was an epidemic unlike any other. Within days, millions were infected. Within weeks, they were forced together. Containment is our absolute priority. Blockade all bridges, streets, and rail links. And then left to die. But 25 years after the outbreak... It's the virus. It's back. Containment has failed. What the hell are we going to do? What we're about to show you is highly confidential. Survivors? Inside the hard zone. And if there are survivors, there must be a cure. You're going out there. If there's such a thing as hell on Earth, that's it. I know what we're looking for. If it's there, I'll find it. Take us in. Now. Once you're over that wall, there's no system, no rules. No backup. To find a cure. We're against the clock on this one. They must return to the world they left behind. How the hell are we supposed to find anything in this mess? I'll know when I see it. This is our 
city! We're gonna catch them, hook them, and eat them! From Rogue Pictures. How dare they send you here? They started this fire. They can burn it. The director of The Descent. Sure it's dangerous. She is. This spring. We're losing our city. It's pretty grim. And it's gonna get a whole lot worse. A new dark age. Have you found the cure? Abandon any such hope. No. Well done. Nice color. I'll take it. Hold on. You think? Rough ride. Rough enough. That was the trailer for Doomsday. It is a dystopian action film directed by Neil Marshall, and it is set in the grim future of 2035. 27 years earlier, A deadly illness dubbed the Reaper virus swept through Scotland. It was deadly, contagious, and had no cure. In an attempt to stop the virus's spread, the British government erected a massive guarded wall separating Scotland from the rest of the United Kingdom. They looked away and let the sickness rip through the population until the prison nation finally went dark. One of the last civilians evacuated from Scotland was Eden Sinclair, played by Rona Mitra. She was a young child when her mother convinced some fleeing soldiers to take her with them, and, now grown, she is haunted by her mother's fate. She works for the Department of Domestic Security, a paramilitary organisation formed to police the British Isles. The UK has become an international pariah following their abandonment of Scotland, and, alone and isolated, it has steadily been seized in the grip of fascism. Now, though, the Reaper virus has returned. Popping up once more in London slums, the renewed sickness sets off alarm bells among the higher-ups, who aren't as enthusiastic about pulling the giant wall trick for the city they all live in. Instead, they're going to flood the infected suburbs and kill everyone inside. But before that, they're exploring one last option. Satellite photos show activity amid the deserted streets of Scotland, survivors where none should exist. If there's people, they reason, that suggests a cure. And if anyone would know anything about that, it would be Dr. Marcus Kane, played by Malcolm McDowell, a government scientist studying the virus who was trapped when the walls went up and hasn't been seen since. Eden is assigned a squadron of soldiers and sent into the ruins of Scotland. Her task is to find Kane and investigate the possibility of a cure. The survivors that dash about the overgrown streets aren't about to stop and give directions, though. They've gone feral during their years of confinement. More than a few are cannibals, and even the ones that aren't have gone completely round the twist. Eden and her team will soon realise that the greatest threat to them isn't the virus, it is the people that survived it. So, before we get too deep into this, why don't we each go around and give our timed 30-second thoughts on what we think of Doomsday. Why don't you start us off, Sean, are you ready? Yep. Three, two, one, go. This movie is ridiculous. <laughs> it's like someone went to Neil Marshall and said, Oh, hey, Neil, we've got three scripts that we think would be really good for you. And he was like, I'll do all of them. (laughs) All of them. This movie does not pull its punches, though. When I think it's going to zag, it zags. And every time I think the movie's getting too commercial, 
like it's getting too cool. A guy gets smushed by a, a truck, and it's like, oh, okay, that's the movie we're watching. Right, you ready, Harley? Yep. Three, two, one, go. Do you think Neil Marshall fucks around? <laughs> About halfway into this movie, I've I've been thinking, oh, it's like a pretty normal standard 2000s, yada, 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 blah, blah, blah. But the moment the can-can starts, <laughs> uh, you start to realize how special this project actually is. It is buck wild in the best possible way. And if you wanted to see... Yeah, it's just wild. If you wanted to see. If you wanted to see. Let me just cue myself up here. About the same time that you identified Harley, the can-can bit, that was about the time I decided we probably needed to do an episode on this. I think that this is... I mean, it's extremely reactive as a movie. I mean, it's taking so much from other things, but it's also putting them together in the most insane and bonkers kind of way. It is a wild film. It is... I agree, as John says, a whole lot of different things at once, and that is kind of what makes it incredible to watch. I do have a production history here. Neil Marshall had just directed The Descent, and so he was riding high, and he was thinking about his next project, and he lived at the time near the ruins of Hadrian's Wall. Hadrian's Wall is a 117-kilometre-long wall built in the year 122 AD by the Roman Emperor Hadrian, hence the name, Uh, And it was built to defend what is now England from tribes from what is now Scotland. And Marshall thought about what might trigger such a construction of something like that today. And so he came up with the virus idea. But he also liked the idea of blending a medieval aesthetic with a present day or even a future one. Uh, I have a quote here from Marshall. I had this vision of these futuristic soldiers with high-tech weaponry and body armor and helmets, clearly from the future fighting a medieval knight on horseback. So essentially Quake. Marshall has made no attempts to obscure his inspiration. He readily admits the hodgepodge of influences that this movie wears on its sleeve. And he has identified, among others, Mad Max, Escape from New York, Excalibur, The Warriors, The Omega Man, Waterworld, Gladiator, Children of Men, and the works of Terry Gilliam as influences. Two of the soldiers that accompany Rona Mitra into Scotland are named Miller and Carpenter. Mm. George Miller and John Carpenter, the directors of Mad Max and Escape from New York, respectively. Despite the setting, the majority of filming took place in South Africa. Of the 66 shooting days, 56 were there and only 10 were in Scotland. There was a bit done in Glasgow and then there was a lot of the castle stuff. The money went further that way. The production cost a third of what it would have if they had shot it in the UK. Marshall found the increased scale a challenge. He was dealing with thousands of extras, lots of pyrotechnics and stunts, really stuff that he had not had to deal with on his movies up until this point, and he wanted to keep it as practical as possible as well. Some sequences were just untenable and had to be cut. He originally wanted attack helicopters attacking the castle with all of the knights on horseback, but that was just impossible to stage, and so it had to be removed. The movie was originally set for distribution by Focus Features, but a deal struck in early 2008 saw Focus shift a bunch of their titles, including Doomsday, to Universal Pictures for wider distribution and marketing. It didn't work out. The movie was released in the United States on the 14th of March 2008, It got a wide release. They did push it. It was released in 1,938 theatres. 
but it came out number seven at the box office against Horton Hears a Who and Never Back Down. It was a box office bomb. It made a $22.5 million gross on a $17 million budget. £17 million budget, I'm sorry, so it lost money. It was the 185th highest grossing movie of 2008, and it was beaten by such classic titles as I'm a Cat Stalker, Disaster Movie, and The Love Guru. Jesus. It was such a commercial failure that it didn't even get a theatrical release in Australia. It was released direct to DVD and Blu-ray on the 1st of October 2008. It was critically divisive. It has a 51% Rotten Tomatoes rating, and the consensus there reads, Doomsday is a pale imitation of previous futuristic thrillers, minus the cohesive narrative and charismatic leads. Audiences were similarly split. They gave it a B-minus cinema score. The movie only received a single nomination full stop. It was nominated for Best Makeup at the Saturn Awards, but other than that, it did not receive a nomination or a win for anything. The Scottish tourism industry was pretty high on it. (laughs) I mean, yeah. A statement from the Scottish screen reads, It's likely to also attract a big audience who will see the extent to which Scotland can provide a flexible and diverse backdrop to all genres of film. As previously stated, it did not attract a big audience. But they filmed most of the outdoor stuff in South Africa. It received uh, criticism for its paternalistic treatment of Scotland by England in the movie, though. There were people questioning whether that was the best presentation of Scotland Yeah, to have in the film, just as a tourism also, thing. Also, it doesn't help that in, what, 20 years, they everyone in Scotland turned into either a cannibal or a LARPer? <laughs> I, I, that probably probably doesn't help. So that's the uh, the production history I've got here for Doomsday. And I, I would like to start off with just your guys' reaction to this because you didn't know anything about it going in. You'd never heard of it before. I advised you to steer clear of details. And so walk me through your journey with this movie because I understand that it was a kind of a roller coaster. Okay, so when we started out, it was like, oh, another pandemic film. Thank you, Lawson. Because <laughs> I absolutely need to be reminded of the past few years. No one's wearing masks at the beginning, number one. So, you know, kind of had it coming. But the, the disease, the Reaper virus, pretty nasty. I do like that it's not a zombie virus or a rage no. virus or something. Mm. It's just a plain virus that kills you. The people that are all, like, awful, they aren't like that because they're sick. They're like that because they're human beings. <laughs> yeah, this is like some Black Death stuff. Like, the bubos, the groats on the face. It's like classic Black Death stuff. Then we get the stuff with, like, Eden's robotic eye. Honestly, don't put it back in your head. It's been rolling over those really unsanitary floors. I think the moment that I knew this movie was going to be something interesting was when she was pointing the gun at the guy who had taken her comrade hostage, and then the the shotgun went off and blew off half of that guy's face i was like oh uh, uh, okay i i didn't expect that we didn't expect something so hardcore Mm. yeah i expected like you know your usual 2008 trying to be hip and cool kind of we wear trench coats because we're cool 
Uh, it has that kind of color grading at the beginning too. It's got like that the bluish tint that Equilibrium gave me a headache for. It's got body armor that looks like the stuff you wear at laser tag. Well, the way I sort of sort of think of it is, it becomes like. It starts off as V for Vendetta, and then it becomes Escape from New York, and then it becomes Mad Max. Yeah. And then it becomes... Semi-Excalibur? Like, we were sitting with that, it's like, oh, it's it's competently shot, it's it's pretty normal. It's uncompromising. Then Souls, Cannibals started showing up, and I was like, okay, here we go, we're getting something interesting here. Eden gets captured by Soul. Sean Pertry gets medium rare. Shall we say? <laughs> There's the scene where he gets cooked and the can-can thing. The, but I do have to say, the moment things started to really click for me is when the gimp showed up. Mm. The Mad Max movies do have a BDSM sort of aesthetic to a lot of the characters. You know, leather, chains. Less so in Fury Road, uh, because they're able to access more stuff and society is more broken down at that point. But we had never seen a full-on gimp before Yeah, in the Mad Max movies. But this movie's just like, hey, here's a gimp. He's got a manky-ass bone that he hits the bed with. Then we get Soul's performance with that kind of like upbeat pop number. And then the can Which I didn't expect upbeat pop as the soundtrack to a cannibal cult. Ladies and gentlemen, here he is. The head chef, the big cheese, the sunshine of your lives. It's Soul! You expect something a little more industrial. <laughs> yeah, I didn't expect Friday night at the Wine Mums Club. <laughs> it's going to be a little hard because I can't find a decent list of the changes made. But did you do you know if you saw the unrated version or the theatrical version? I saw a rabbit explode. Does that that doesn't help? That like the there's a lot more gore and stuff. I mean, especially when Sean Pertwee's being cut up. But um, the the best way I can really suggest here is at the beginning when they're spying on the slave traders on the ship, it cuts indoors and we see a bit of what's going on with the slave traders and, like, he opens up the hatch and shows a bunch of people in, in the hold underneath looking up to the buyer. I think so. Yeah, it's not a very helpful, like, the, the thing I'm I don't I'm looking, know if I'm, I recall that exactly. We see a dude get, like, full-on flattened by one of the APCs. I mean, there's a lot of violence in this movie, so <laughs> it doesn't really help. But, the, yeah, there is an unrated version. It's There are a few, like, little bits of characterization and detail there, but, it. I mean, the bulk of it really is the violence. I mean, they really do go to some, like, Jamie Oliver levels of cutting recently cooked meat in the the cannibal cookout bit. I appreciated how quickly the team at the beginning is whittled down. I, I appreciate that people just get taken to the fucking cleaners by these guys. Well, this is the thing about this whole movie is it's drawing so much. There's a lot of aliens in that. Yeah. Mm. Um, the, the James Cameron movie Aliens, like the whole idea of this, you know, big badass troop of soldiers and they come in and they're talking shit and then they're just immediately 
taken down the second that the bad guys turn up. It's very matter-of-fact in the violence. It's very sudden and... It's matter-of-fact, but it's also so over-the-top and theatrical. Yeah. yeah. Like, the bit that gets to me, got to me the first time, was she's in that sword fight against Soul's girlfriend. Yes. And cuts the arm off. All right, nothing we haven't seen before in this movie. Cuts her head off, and her eyes are still moving? Ew! <laughs> that's weird! And I love it. <laughs> it works so well, because the practical effects here are, frankly, astonishing. Yeah, I mean, considering it was made for, what did I say there, 17 million pounds? I mean, this is a movie with a huge sense of production value, a huge scale to it. It's ambitious. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Amazing squib work. I really appreciate it when a movie is able to go there with, like, Blood Spider and stuff, because there's a very specific consistency and spray that real blood has that this movie's not mimicking. That's important. Because it has to be bigger. Yeah. It has to be explosive. You gotta pack more shit into the squibs than would actually be necessary. And we get those amazing sprays, we get to see the bags get run over, and like, spl- blood, like, guts spilling out everywhere. It's great, great work, from a practical standpoint. And even just, like, the sheer amount of screeching lunatics on screen. Oh yeah, absolutely, it's great. I don't know if I'm going crazy because of Mad God, but I swear I saw, like, a baseball pitcher holding, yeah, like... like, a guy just like a baseball player. As part of, like, Soul's crew. Which I wouldn't put it past, but it feels like that guy may have just walked onto set and been <laughs> super confused, but still been like, eh, okay. I swear to God, I saw him, and it's like, you're possibly the craziest person here, because you've gone completely against the aesthetic of everyone else. <laughs> that dude is the biggest madman in this cult. But it is such a, a big sort of melting pot of all of these different influences, and I think that is... I mean, it's what makes the movie kind of objectively uneven. I mean, if you were to sit here and analyse it as a film, you, you know, you, you treat it with the same seriousness as you treat Citizen Kane, yeah, there are a lot of problems here. It's a mess. But... That that sort of melting pot of influences and directions and things that it wants to do, it's the melding of it all together that gives it its own sort of berserk personality. Yeah. In a movie this messy, I shouldn't multiple times when something rad happens just literally stand up and go, Yes! Neil Marshall is like a kid who's drank too much red cordial, and he's like, and yeah. now this, and now this, and now there's going to be, you know, Malcolm McDowell's living in a castle, and then there's going to be a chase scene with, with, a, with a really cool car, and there's going to be like an underground military storage thing, because I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark yeah, once. Yeah, it's, it's a kid bashing his toys together and trying to explain to you what happened at school that day. Yeah, it's him bringing in all of his favourite movies from the 70s and 80s, yeah. and smushing them all together and... After we watched the movie, I said to John, it's almost as if I was going in and out of consciousness, and three different movies had gone by in that state of mind. You know how you kind of, like, your mind sort of, like, takes in a little bit of the information from time to time, but the way it, like, merges together in your head when you're, like, really just flagging going in and out, how it, like, merges together to make something truly bizarre... That's basically undoable. Yeah. This is that. <laughs> it's insane because um, it's got all of those 
inspirations, like you said. And I was just sitting here when they got into the APC and they're driving in. I was like, holy shit, are they going to are they going to do Apocalypse now with this Kane character? I mean, pretty much. But like that APC thing, that's aliens as well. Yeah, yeah. That whole first sequence where they first encounter Souls gang of misfits and you know they've gone crazy because they've shaved their hair into mohawks and dyed them like neon colors yeah that's that's how you know that they've gone wild (laughs) but like here's the thing there must be one and this is something about like all like punk aesthetic post-apocalyptic things it's like the people who are most significant in their cultures must be their hairdressers exactly I want, like, the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead of one of these post-apocalyptic movies that is is following the hairdresser in charge of keeping the aesthetic consistent. Because it's, like, those mohawks and stuff, that's hard to keep precise and neat. That takes work. That is a situation where you're like, I know that I should probably be go out, go out and be hunting for food, but Sol has a concert on, and I need to look my best. I need to look my best if I'm going to get a good part of the roasted human. But according to Marshall, Kane is based on Colonel Kurtz from Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Like, from Heart of Darkness and later on, obviously, Apocalypse Now, with that scene between uh, Kane and Eden when she's in the cage about to fight against fucking, I don't know, Master Blaster (laughs) out there. He's like, he's the mountain from Game of Thrones. <laughs> and good lord, Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> Malcolm McDowell comes into this. McDowell has described his character as King Lear. Yeah, it makes a certain sense. You like, you could say that Malcolm McDowell is slumming it here, but there's no one who fits better. I don't think he's slumming it. I think it's, his, it's one of his most respectable roles in the last 20 years. <laughs> <laughs> like, think about it. It's a wide release reasonably budgeted movie that he's good in. I would say it's more respectable than his time as Sam Loomis, that's for damn sure. And and going back to that Apocalypse Now thing, it's like, all of the people in London and all of that stuff, it's the airs of civility. It's the idea that these are civilized people, but they're just gonna let people die. Then we go to Souls people, and it's the complete denial of civility, but they seem to have a society working and then you go back to malcolm mcdowell's people and their whole thing is the complete denial of the present day nature and going back to medieval times almost luddites in a weird way yeah Yeah. and the subsequent remove from the actual situation that people are in did he spend the whole time waiting for a reveal that malcolm mcdowell was ronimitra's father or something like that yes yes I, I was expecting that after the thing in the cage, because the guy, like, one of her men asks her what her name is in the scene just before that, and she says that her name is Eden, like, it's meant to be this moment, but then, like, I expected that to be a moment where it's like, oh, we're putting the pieces together, and Kane is her dad. I'm glad they didn't go in that direction, though. Yeah. I am too, because that would have been a little much. That would have been too convenient. I mean, even just now, like, there's, there's these little things that Marshall's doing that I don't even make a ton of sense when you actually lay them out. Like, they're not, like, brilliantly thought through. But, like, the the fact that her name is Eden and it's, like, the Garden of Eden, that she, she left the garden and now she's <laughs> going back in. And When they said her name at the beginning of the movie, I was like, oh, for fuck's sake. 
Jesus, really? But like Prime Minister Hatcher, the fascist? <laughs> like, come on. Ha- Hatcher, hmm. This movie has the subtlety of a sledgehammer. Exactly. Alexander Siddig, who plays the Prime Minister, by the way, is Malcolm McDowell's real-life nephew. Oh, really? Mm. Oh, but I never picked that. I recognise him from Gotham, where he played Rachel Gould. Most people will know him as Dr. Bashir from all seven seasons of Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Yeah, Yeah, but I'm not most people. (laughs) And and then we've got Sean Poetry, who played Alfred. Who's like who's the guy who's working with the prime minister here? Oh, the guy who ends up being the proper bad guy. Yeah, yeah, Daniel O'Hara. You'd remember him as the guy that Harry Potter knocks out and then takes the form of in the first Deathly Hallows movie. Like, dude's been in stuff. But then, obviously, there's Bob Hoskins as well. Yeah, Hoskins is here. Do you think Neil Marshall understood that when he made this movie, none of these actors would work? in a high-budget movie ever again. Not in any significant way. Uh, Malcolm McDowell's been in stuff. I mean, I know we poke fun at Malcolm McDowell out of love, but, like, he played Rupert Murdoch in that Fox News movie with John Lithgow's Roger Ailes. Bombshell. Yeah. Someone needs to throw Malcolm McDowell a bone. He needs to get, like, a HBO FX thing. Absolutely. He needs to, he needs to be looking for the sort of Brian Cox in succession style standout yeah. supporting role exactly. in a high budget prestige. He should show. be going for a role in like, you know, Rings of Power or Dance of the Dragons, like Malcolm McDowell is fucking Shakespeare trained for God's sake. The only regular TV role he's taken in the last 20 years was on that I think it was TNT, it might have been TBS, but it was like Franklin and Bash, that uh, that comedy lawyer show. Is he just denying being in television? He's done two episodes of that new Gossip Girl series. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> you could say he needs to stop being so proud, but I don't think he is. But apparently he's also a supporting character. He plays, like, the grandfather on a Canadian sitcom called Son of a Critch. I hate that title. Yeah, he's having a set in 1980s Newfoundland and Labrador, where he plays the mischievous patriarch and grandfather in the family who has to share a room with his youngest grandson. So, war on grandpa? He was in that um, Nick Frost show, Truth Seekers. Yes, he's also, oh my god, uh, he, was he was. also in Mozart in the Jungle. Yes, there you go. That's a decent, a decently uh, respectable job. He also voiced characters in Metapocalypse... Bolt, Fallout 3, God of War 3, Elder Scrolls Online, Call of Duty, Black Ops 3, and Castlevania. And he'll turn up for Rob Zombie every now and again. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, I would love to see him in the the Monsters movie. I want him to just have, like, one oh, scene in it. I saw the trailer for that Monsters movie, and, like, any all the interest I have, like, evaporated in seconds. It was It was actually kind of impressive. Yeah, I'm looking at his upcoming selection of movies, and the only thing I even recognise the name of is that, I think it's on Netflix, the animated series for Ark Survival Evolved. Oh, oh God. Jesus. Apparently Russell Crowe is in that as well. What? I'm, I Look, I'm looking at the IMDb page right now, and I'm seeing a cast list that includes Elliot Page, Carl Urban, Michelle Yeoh, Russell Crowe, Gerard Butler, Vin Diesel, David Tennant, Alan Tudyk, Jeffrey Wright. Sorry, who the fuck did they kill to get that cast? 
I think it's just Vin Diesel calling in a bunch of favours because he's like, if you go into his interviews, he's like weirdly obsessed with Ark Survival Evolved. <laughs> that makes sense. <laughs> like he talks about it as one of the greatest video games ever made and real gamers know that this is one of the greatest video games ever made and stuff like that. And I personally can't stand it, but that's just me. I think the main thing of it is it's people with guns in the back of dinosaurs, which is what Dominion should have been. I mean... People with guns on the back of dinosaurs is red, but we already have, we already have Turok. Look, okay, back to the movie. John read me the thing about like the futuristic soldier versus the knight thing, and then John immediately doubted that it would be in the movie. Yeah, I was like, oh, they won't do that. They'll they'll do something similar. I was surprised when we got to all of the medieval bullshit. They can hear rumbling in the distance. And then you just see this knight as if it's out of Excalibur or some shit. Yeah. Just ride out on a horse and like, oh my god, it's going to happen. I think you and I, we cheered and clapped when that happened. Yeah. Because it's the situation of, okay, so we don't actually need to care about the characters because that's not what the point is. But he, it's, it's him doing Army of Darkness as much as it is yeah. Excalibur. Yeah. I mean, r- right up until being chucked in the pit and forced to fight. That's the thing that is so interesting about this is, but like, there's not a beat of it that's original. Not a beat. But it's the weird sort of Frankensteinian repurposing of parts. It's, it just keeps going in just interesting directions. I mean, you guys have indicated that you weren't thrilled with the opening of the movie, but I'm actually really kind of taken by some of the weird sort of V for Vendetta future oh, fashion. I, I stuff. like that stuff. I like it fine. It's just not as compelling as the rest. Okay. So. For me, it's the monologue, basically, that Malcolm McDowell's doing. I liked all of that stuff, all of the background, all of the history about this thing. The Nico virus spread among the population of Glasgow like a common cold. There was no stopping it. No cure. No vaccine. It claimed the lives of thousands in the first week. In an attempt to quell the outbreak, martial law was implemented, roadblocks set up, curfews enforced. The airports, seaports, and borders were closed. Scotland was placed under quarantine. The people were ordered to stay in their homes, to avoid travel, avoid contact, to sit it out and wait for help that did not come. And then it got to, you know, all of the stuff with Eden being a cop and all of this like future politics and everything and I'm like eh. The one thing I wanted more of was I wanted more detail as to I mean they make that throwaway line that um the UK is sort of a pariah now that no one wants anything to do with them because of what happened. I kind of wanted more detail about that. I kind of like the idea that literally everywhere else is just operating as normal. Yeah. Australia, the US, Canada, Europe, everyone's just doing the normal thing. It's only the UK that is operating like an an 80s action movie. Yeah. Like, a bunch of people are, like, watching the news from a distance about what's happening in the UK. Ireland's just normal. I don't... I'm not sure about that. I think it's the United Kingdom. Yeah, it's the UK. Like, they've still got control, I think. To be fair, like, when you cordon off the entirety of Scotland, that's going to... Raise a couple of red flags in the other countries. Oh, yeah. Ireland in particular is, like, pulling at that collar. Ooh. If it's Scotland first, 
it's probably Ireland next. I, I think the the interesting thing is like the French are probably looking at all of that and they're like, I fucking knew it. Well, the French have probably like got their own wall at that yeah. point. <laughs> I think the least logical thing about this movie is the fact that this Reaper virus hasn't spread to the entire world. I think that's the most unrealistic thing about it. I th- I, but I, I actually think it kind of works because, I mean, think about it. They just, they walled it off. Everyone that was infected is stuck there and they just forgot about it. They never went back. Also, that's a, that's a lot of stuff to, like, start off pretty much on a whim to put a wall Oh, yeah, between... that's the big, like, that they built a wall in, what, two weeks? <laughs> yeah, like, there was infrastructure in place for that to happen before this. I mean, unless they repurpose some of the Hadrian's Wall stuff. Mm. But it's like, if you get the contractor who's doing it, it's like, Fuck, that's a lot of work. It's a lot of work. I might be able to do it in two weeks if I get my guys. But how do you keep that on the down low from the people in Scotland while you're doing it? Like, fundamentally, there's so much stuff that needs to be accomplished for that wall to be built. I love some of the landscapes here. Oh, yeah, you get these, like, big swooping shots, and there's some really gorgeous photography. There's the bit at the end with all of the car chases and everything that is, I mean... That's sort of the reason for making the movie almost is to have that gorgeous car zooming around being chased by these Mad Max things. That's a really interesting thing, isn't it? That uh, that it's so heavily inspired by Mad Max, but it and anticipates so much of Fury Road, right down to the people strapped to the front of the car. And it's the gimp strapped to the front too. You know that they were just getting the car ready and he was sort of there just like, and just sort of pointing at the front of the car and they were like, I, I guess we'll bring him. You know the only way that guy can communicate is grunting. Yeah. One of the army dudes says to him, So you like pain? <laughs> he shrieks. Then he gets rammed into the wall. No, no, no. The car rams, and then he goes flying into a bus that's been overturned? Yeah, because that's like, again, that's Mad Max. That's from the first Mad Max movie is when it yeah. hits that van. It's very, very specific, all of this stuff. Like, those landscapes are really beautiful, and the car chase is really cool, but I'm, I'm more talking about the landscape, landscapes we get as they're walking up to Kane's castle. Yeah. That's some beautiful stuff. That shot of the castle from a distance with the knight standing, like, standing there on the horse, I'm just like, God, that is a beautiful shot. But one of the funniest, funniest things to me is when... Like, someone kicks one of the doors and the cars will open as they're making their escape. And you can see the emergency exit sign is still on there. Yeah. Well, they've still got, like, a directions to the gift shop yeah, when yeah. they arrive. And I that's what I love. I love the idea that this is, like, all of the LARPers in, in Scotland are populating that castle. All of the people who used to work in that castle, like, the reenactors, the people who worked in the gift shop, are all just still there they're in character and that guy with the arrows like finally finally i get to use my training for some have you guys seen escape from new york no no it's the same ending it's like they he, the, the hero gets what the government was looking for they go back to the government you know we have a deal right yeah we have a deal and then um it's the same thing where they've held something back that they then use to screw over the guy because 
that final conversation is the confirmation needed for the hero to to really want to undo this dirty, corrupt government. Like I said, there's not an original thought in the thing, but it's the way that it's been remixed. I do feel like we're reaching the end of the conversation, but um, I do want to like take a moment to compliment the score by Tyler Bates. It's not synthy, it's an orchestra. It's not a synth yeah. score, but it has that kind of like vibe to it. Has that very 80s B-movie vibe, just with a broader scope. When that music was playing, when the army dude is running away from the people with the arrows, all of Kane's people, and it was running towards the car, it's a track, it's like the last minute or so of the track, Bentley Escape. I cackled with laughter at this very emotional, over-the-top, almost platoon music of this guy just getting boromeered, basically. And it's, we're meant to feel something? Like, the music is implying that we're meant to feel something. But I'm just like, this is just cool. I'm, I'm not sad for this guy because I don't know who this guy is. For, for me, my biggest laugh came from when the, the only other soldier to survive other than Eden says, what, you're going to just let them win? And I had to, I had to laugh because up till this point, what character interactions have they had that implied this was anything but a job? Yeah, exactly. It's like, I'm sorry, but like, mate, your character is not the important part of this movie. (laughs) No, you don't have any relationship to Eden. How do you even know that the government's doing dodgy shit? We get no information about why he knows that something is off. We can just assume that they're dodgy. Yeah, but that's not enough for that line to make any sense whatsoever for that character to be saying. Like, the script's not exactly strong here, and I don't think it has to be. It's audacious. It's a love letter to all of the things that Neil Marshall is inspired by. There's so much Waterworld in here. There's so much Mad Max. We just talked about it. There's so much love for post-apocalypse and pre-apocalypse films that it just bleeds through as completely earnest. Mm. And I think that's why I like it so much. It's completely honest with its love. It's not doing it to cash in. It's not a cash grab. It is a God's honest love letter to the movies that he loves. He's a little kid smashing his toys together. And there's a joy in that sense, that it's not full of ego, it's not full of posturing that it's so important. It's cheese. It's absolute cheese. Uh, Alright, is there anything else you guys would like to add? No, I think that's about it. Alright then, um, now there are a couple of entries in the IMDb Parents Guide this week. For the uninitiated, the IMDb Parents Guide segment is when we talk about the prudish and or pervy entries in the IMDb Parents Guide on the movie that we're talking about. The first one here is in the violence and gore section. A man tied to the front of a car screams as the car crashes through a trailer. We see the man's bloody body when the car comes through the other side. The man appears to be laughing since he is a sadist. And the only other one was, it's not actually inappropriate for or weirdly phrased. I just find it interesting whenever these pop up in the parent's guide. It's it's an account of all of the swearing. 
29 F-words, 16 scatological terms, 7 anatomical terms, 4 mild obscenities, name-calling, such as savages and idiot, and 3 religious exclamations. Name-calling. I love that. So now why don't we go around and say who our MVP is for this movie, what our favourite single sequence is, and who we would recast with this podcast, Patron Saint, character actor John Lithgow. Knock, knock, who's there? (laughs) Me! I will start us off and I will say that my MVP here probably got to be Malcolm McDowell. I I mean, we we take a bit of fun. We we like to poke him a bit, but he is a phenomenal actor and he he has a, such a fantastic gravitas, such a I mean, I could listen to him read the phone book. He was born to deliver the kind of ominous narration that he delivers at the start of this movie and then when he does turn up he's right that there's sort of a, a leer like quality to it but it is this sort of mad king element that he is doing and and he i mean it's it's sort of a crucial role it's the same way that Marlon Brando was crucial in Apocalypse Now is when you actually get to the guy that you've been searching this whole time and he's nuts You've got to pull that off. You've got to have the actor there that pulls that off, and mm. Malcolm McDowell does that. In terms of my favourite scene or sequence, I think I've got to go with the car chase at the end, the the car chase along the Scottish Highlands. I mean, that moment at Sol's cannibal rave slash barbecue, that part was the part that I first like realised, okay, this might be a movie that I am really in tune with, but nothing comes close to the awesomeness of that car chase for me. It's just the visual. It's just that that I'm not a car person, but that's a gorgeous car. And the fact that yeah. it's being, you know, chased around by these weird Mad Max sort of spiky dumpster things. Yeah. And there's all the action and the crashes and, you know, the helicopter shots. It It's the most expensive looking that the movie gets. It's the best looking that the movie gets too. And it's just a, a parade of really cool things one after the other. And <laughs> so I got to give it to that. In terms of who I would recast with this podcast, patron saint character, actor John Lithgow, I considered the evil guy, the, you know, the guy that turns out to be the bad guy. But you know what? It would be a riskier casting than casting him as the evil guy. But I want to go with Sol because I think it's the most interesting if you look at some of the performances that John Lithgow had gave back in the 80s, he has done that kind of manic, insane killer performance before. Not quite in that specific realm, but adjacent enough to it that I think that there is room there for him to do something interesting. And I think that putting him behind the wheel of a Mad Max-style car chase scene... You just want to see him with a bloody mohawk there's a whole lot about him in that role that is appealing like the whole you know vamping on the stage and and all of that stuff it'd be a lot of fun it'd have him in a fair bit of the movie uh it's a it's a kind of role that we don't normally talk about for him and that is partially what appeals to me as well so yeah i think i go with that one for me i have to go with uh michael mcdowell here for the mvp he makes that whole sequence work because with a less dedicated, less skilled actor, it just doesn't function properly. You need someone who can sell the commitment. Someone who can sell the conviction. Because the way that they've chosen to live is very deliberate. Like he says, almost in a religious way, the option chose them mm. instead of them choosing the castle. They say, he says stuff like, this castle was built to last. 
uh, stuff like that. So you need someone who can sell the heart of darkness, essentially. Yeah. And he nails it. And plus, he gets to dress like a feudal lord, which he has the training for. So he just fits beautifully in that spot. My favorite scene or sequence has to be everything at Kane's castle. All the stuff with the knights and shit like that. It's just, I love how it conflicts with the rest of it. In a movie that has had many different genres up till now, we get medieval stuff, and I just find that very, very compelling. Who I would recast with character actor John Lithgow, like Lawson said, probably Soul, because he gets to do a lot of stuff that he could do at the time, like, obviously, 80s John Lithgow. Like, cliffhanger John Lithgow. You get him to play Soul, he gets to have fun with it. He gets to vamp on stage, he gets to do some really intense screaming stuff. It's just the best choice, because I don't see John Lithgow as Kane. I just can't. He doesn't have that... There's a quality Malcolm McDowell has. A severity, I suppose, that that He's a severe-looking person. Yeah, there's like a severity to Malcolm McDowell's look that John Lithgow doesn't quite have. He can be scary, he can be villainous, but he never looks severe. There's that hungry look in Malcolm McDowell's eyes. So I give my MVP to two people, actually. Craig Conway and Lee Ann Leibenberg. They play, respectively, Sol and Viper, the wild woman who is Sol's second-in-command and girlfriend? Wife? Domestic partner. I don't know what their situation <laughs> De is. De facto. De facto, yeah. I am never smiling more than when they are on screen. They have such a glee in what they're doing. And you can tell that it's the kind of performance that both actors are just eating up. And they're just going for it. I appreciate that so much. Lee Ann Leibenberg, the look in her eye when Sean Pertree is getting roasted is pure insanity. And I think that's so great. They do such a good job at being our lead in to the Mad Max segment of the film. Because it's like, they're proper full-bodied performances, and I appreciate that a lot. For my favorite scene or sequence, I think it's interesting, because I think it is all of that stuff. I'm, I'm rolling it over in my head. I think it's the moment the knight shows up. Like, because it's the first moment where, in the movie, it has seemed like a decision has been made that will either make or break the film for people. It is such a brave narrative moment, and I think it just rocks. I cheered, I clapped, I was loud at a time of night that my neighbors probably did not appreciate, but it was a moment that has stuck with me just because of the way it was shot, framed, and even lit. That moment is gorgeous to look at. It looks like something out of a weird sci-fi fairy tale. And I appreciated that a lot. For who I would get character actor John Lithgow to play, it's interesting. I feel like he would be good as David O'Hara's character. Sort of that very pragmatic, practical kind of character who is just going to be completely mercenary and ice cold about talking about the deaths of hundreds, if not thousands and millions of people. I think that would be a good role for him. Although, I do see where you're coming from with the character of Sol, but I disagree that you would have to make him young. If you you could just frame it, 
that Sol is Kane's brother, and instantly you've got a John Lithgow character who I can fully expect to eat human beings. Nom nom. So, now we're going to put it to a vote, whether or not we are a pro-Doomsday podcast. Lawson, why don't you start us off? I'm going to bite the bullet and say yes. This isn't a perfect movie, far from it. Oh no, it's deeply stupid. It's not very original, it's got a whole bunch of problems if you really are drilling down into it, but there's just something about the end result, the end product, the the weird alchemy of all of it put together that really works for me. I have a lot of fun watching it. I think it is bonkers and weird and ambitious, and I'm always having a good time with it. And it just, every time you think you've figured out what it is, it goes and does this other strange thing, because Neil Marshall has a movie that he loved, that he saw in the 80s, and, (laughs) you know, he wants to work that in there too somehow. And it's just a lot of fun. And I think it's... I mean, Neil Marshall's current troubles aside, I think it's a pity that this movie sort of killed his chance to get bigger budgets again. Mm. He was sort of locked out from budgets this big after after Doomsday was such a failure commercially. But I have a lot of fun with it. And really, when it, what it comes down to it, our specialty Blu-ray line, do I think that we could get a really like strong collector's edition out of this? Do I think it's a movie that deserves it? Yeah, I do. So I'm saying we're Oh, I, I can imagine, like, the little bits of merchandise you could put in it. Hey, here's a bust of Soul's head screaming at you. Here's a 4K restoration with a behind-the-scenes feature all about the making and Neil Marshall's career since then. And I say pro as well, because this is just madness. It's heavy metal as hell. And it's deeply silly. Deeply ridiculous. There are plot holes all over the place, but it doesn't matter because it's just trying to be fun. This movie has not got a strong script. It has characters I frankly don't care about. But then again, it also has a Mad Max chase scene and knights on horseback fighting modern day soldiers. It's a softer yes than from Lawson, but it's still a yes. I cheered a lot while watching this movie, more than is possibly reasonable, but. I just had a really good time with it. And and sometimes it's not about the overall quality of a piece. It's about what you get from it. Exactly. It doesn't need to be high art. And I got a lot from this. So it's a yes. Yeah, I think modern criticism has done a lot of damage to, you know, discussions about film. This idea that every film needs to mean something has to well, be saying something about no, no. the human condition. All movies mean something. All art yeah. means something. It's it's the idea that audiences are somehow in contest against the directors of a piece. Like it's a game. Yeah. Sometimes you can just enjoy it, you know? And that that really is a market that I feel has been lost for a lot of people in the critic space. Less so for general audiences, but you know what I mean, Lawson? Yeah. Sometimes you just want to enjoy something. There's a bit of film Twitter in that, too. The bit of snobbiness there as well that Hmm. falls into that. So, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. We are a pro-Doomsday podcast. So, if you would like to reach us, you can find us at each of our blogs. You can find Lawson at Exit Through the Candy Counter, because I join myself at On the Bright Side. 
You can also reach us through our Twitter, which is the best place to give us episode-specific feedback and movie recommendations. Have you seen Doomsday? Are you sick of us talking about pandemic films? How many have we done? We did... We did Children of Men. Children of Men. We did this. But would you really call Children of Men a plague movie? Deep Vendetta. Yes, I would. I would I would argue that it is because of the pl- the background in the movie. Viva Vendetta, obviously. Oh, Children Men is more of a pandemic movie than Viva Vendetta is. Fair. Yeah. Anywho, you can also like, rate, comment, share, and subscribe on your podcast app of choice. Just if you notice any like episodes coming late or anything, we've moved on to a new hosting service for the podcast. Because the previous one we were on was, is shutting down in the coming months. So if there's any delays of episodes going up, it is because of that. But please do like, comment, and subscribe. Here is the rest of the United Kingdom outside of the megacities. England is under the thumb of the Teletubbies, as I've established before. Living in Scotland has become a desperate struggle for survival against the various Sean Connery machines that hunt the humans not kept safe by city walls. Every Sean Connery character ever he's ever played including the last one. Oh, <laughs> Jesus. Yep, Sir Billy is out there, and he's hunting. Northern Ireland is still a gorgeous-looking land, but one must be careful. The rainbow is no longer a sign of a fading storm, but one that indicates oncoming danger. The leprechauns are here. Are, are we talking, like, breakfast mascots, or are we talking Warwick Davis? Every single type, actually. Oh. So, Lawson, what do we have next week? Well, next week we'll be doing a, a, a different movie, another movie that I held because I think it will be a good one to talk about. Much less fun, uh, intentionally so. A, a fairly difficult film to contend with. That is the point of it. It is the 2008 American remake of Funny Games. If you would like to follow along, you can find it available for rental or purchase in Australia on the Fetch, Apple, Amazon and YouTube stores. And you guys have not seen this one either. No. And you know very little of it, be- of it beyond the fact that it's a home invasion movie. I know the vaguest things, but nothing in detail. Best to go into it with as little knowledge as possible. I will be interested to talk to you about that. I think there's a lot operating under the surface there. But, but yes, there, there are two versions of Funny Games. We're talking about the English language version. Well, which, to my understanding... Doesn't really make much difference. No, it's a shot-for-shot remake by the same director. So that's nice. I like it when directors do that. So there you have it, everybody. Remember to tune in next week for our thoughts on funny games. But for now, I have been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and I will continue to be, the king of the cannibal people, Sean Lewis. Sean Lewis.